Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two game likers with chronic knee pain examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club where the subtitles spoil people's names. Season 2 is underway, we just started it, we're exploring Final Fantasy VII Remake and each chapter's equivalent content in the original Final Fantasy VII, first released in 1997. That's a lot of sevens. This episode features Chapter 1. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Final Fantasy VII Remake alongside these episodes where we will explore this fantastic game chapter by chapter. My name's Tyler. And I am Nate. And we are your host. Nate, how are you feeling tonight? I'm doing good. I'm having a great time. I have developed a slight cough, as is tradition now for podcast season. You gotta have a cough. Yeah, I gotta create extra work for you, honestly. You're not putting enough hours, so you gotta cut those coughs from the audio. (laughs) That's okay, Nate. Are you taking your zinc, though? Yes, I have like five bottles of different vitamins to slam here every morning. Wonderful. How about you? How are you doing? I'm great. I had a good day. Rose made ribs. Baby's great. Everything's pretty great right now. Oh, I did a milestone I hit here after a year or so of doing this. I got my first dislike on YouTube. No. Yeah, I made a video where I played the demo for Resident Evil 4 remake here. A lot of remakes going on in our life. And I said that generally I was liking it and having it a good time, but that I didn't feel like I needed to buy it right away because it was kind of just more of the same thing. And that's dislike worthy on YouTube, apparently. Wear it like a badge of honor. Yeah, exactly. All right, so are we ready to hop into the intro? I have so much to say about just this. I do too. There is so much to say, but I'm going to do you one better, Nate. I want to talk about the title screens. Okay, yeah, I got it. Right, so what we get is a black background, underlined black layers that fade to blue, set in all capitals in front of that streaking comet, because every Final Fantasy has that iconic image of it, and Final Fantasy VII is this streaking comet. There's remake over in the corner, and Foji, I didn't remember this until we played it, but there's this weird distress map that you originally go to after you hear the beautiful PlayStation 1 chime. And instead of going to like that buster sword, like half sliced into the ground, we get this distressed map with the words Final Fantasy and then this funny symbol and like really sharp red slashes as they do like select developer credits. What was that? I don't remember any part of that image connected to any other part of the game. I'm going to tell you right now that that artwork, it looks terrible. (laughs) (laughs) The typeface for Final Fantasy is not written in the Final Fantasy typeface. The little artwork in the center looks like a tribal tattoo of some kind does yes and it looks like it's using the overlay blending mode in photoshop where it kind of like burns out the color detail on the layer below i'm guessing this thing was whipped up last second at the direction of tetsuya nomura because that tribal tattoo in the center that's so him i can slap that right on the side of zell dink's face and it'll fit right in oh did he develop zell or is he a character developer or something tetsuya nomura is the lead artist for final fantasy Seven's character design. He was an artist prior to that, kind of like did things here and there for Final Fantasy five and six, but Mm -hmm. he took over the art reins for character direction when it came to seven from uh, Amano. Is it Yoshitaka? Yoshitaka Amano. Yes. 
Yeah. Amano did like initial character concepts for seven, but the majority of the artwork you saw in the manuals, the character portraits, everything were all done by Nomura instead of Amano. No kidding. He's the one that usurped Amano's reign, huh? In more ways than one. Nomura, for whatever reason, I like him. I think he's a cool guy, but he's also like, in a lot of ways, the bane of my existence at Square Enix. He's the creator of the Kingdom Hearts series, which which I enjoy. I like it, but he's also the person that's responsible for things like Stranger of Paradise, which I discussed last uh, in our intro episode. He's just, he's the belts guy. When everybody talks about everybody having too many belts, it's his fault. Oh yes. I recall there are characters in this game that have too many belts too. Yes. Too many belts and the culmination of Lulu from Final Fantasy X being all belts all the time. Anyway, I'm digressing away from our initial discussion here of the intro screen. I agree. I have no idea where the hell this thing's coming from but it was my initial exposure to the final fantasy fanfare oh uh, yeah that prelude with the arpeggio melody yes and i'm guessing that i probably heard it as a kid in final fantasy one on the nintendo or final mm-hmm. fantasy two on snes because i was exposed to those games i never owned them i never played through them myself but i did see them happening so i might have heard the song before but this was the first time that i really soaked it in and was captured Activated by that track. Sure, sure. Final Fantasy VI ends the entire game, ends the credits, and the ends the anything that might have happened in the post credits with a star field and this prelude playing. And I remember just letting that star field animation go and listening to the prelude play endlessly because it doesn't turn itself off. You turn the game off, and I just didn't want to after defeating Kafka. So I have very fond memories of this too, with six being my first exposure to it. I think it's called the Crystal Theme, or at least that's what you hear most people refer to it as. I don't know. There's a more official track name for it. Mm -hmm. I've heard it as simply Prelude, but I've heard it as Crystal Theme too, now that you mention it. So in Remake's menu, we've got new game, continue, load game options, SE members, and then what we see is like the Buster Sword slashed into the ground. But if you toggle over, and this is if you bought Intermission, there's another title screen for the Intermission side quest featuring Yuffie Kisaragi. Nate, did you observe this screen? I have observed the screen, but not recently for the purposes of our podcast here. Very much like the Buster Sword, Yuffie Kisaragi's four-pointed shuriken is slashed into the ground in the same sort of way that the Buster Sword is. So that there's a parallelism between the two adventures and the main characters is weapons. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah. Following that, there's difficulty. Easy, classic, easy, normal, classic, and normal. There's kind of a breakdown of how the game works. The modern version of Remake is much more action-oriented, and so they have a system where you can essentially let the computer handle all of the action, and you just input special commands like abilities and spells. Yeah, and I'm not playing on classic, I'm playing on normal, but I can imagine that classic probably feels a lot like Xenoblade Chronicles because you attacked automatically, didn't you? Yes, you did. If you were in range of your enemy, they would do their regular strikes and you would just be in control of positioning and abilities. Mm-hmm. Although that game, it would be in the opposite direction because in this game, you build up your resources to spend abilities, whereas in Xenoblade, you always have abilities that you're waiting to come off cooldown. Mm-hmm. There's also a comment in this difficulty screen where it says, when you beat the game, hard mode unlocks in which enemies hit harder, have more health, benches only restore HP, not MP, and you can't use items in battle. 
and also hard mode features new game content such as new boss encounters. I do have access to hard mode on PlayStation, but I figured for the sake of how much time I'm going to be pumping into this podcast, I should just play on normal. Mm -hmm. And also so that I can have kind of a similar experience to anyone else picking up the game with us. I'll say that in the title screen, you kind of get a highlight of the differences in the Buster Sword between versions. Cloud's signature weapon, the Buster Sword, is much more detailed than it was in the original and in the remake we also see that it's correctly stabbed into the earth lit by a dim light with atmospherics and fog rolling around it whereas in the original it's just kind of precariously leaned up against nothing and i wonder how it isn't falling over because it isn't stabbed into the ground at all it's very simplistic in its design yeah that's true it literally looks like a propeller with a handle or a giant cleaver with a handle like a six foot seven foot cleaver with a handle Mm -hmm. you made another analogy about it last time we got together it's a huge ridiculous weapon that looks heavy as fuck yeah like i said before it was the first time i'd seen anything like this oh i agree yeah iconic so we smash that new game button we do nate we do the final fantasy 7 remake intro movie plays we begin with the camera soaring above a rocky wasteland the nothingness is vast and goes on for miles a bird soars into flame and our eye follows it as it banks right then way out there through a curtain of clouds we can see a skyline we see the bird up close it's a large black bird raven like it's very normal looking like it's not a monster or some fantasy interpretation of a bird it's just a bird but it soars through a cloud a rugged construction site in between tower cranes through another cloud and then boom a broad cityscape of office buildings and curving highways we see a passenger train on an elevated railway go by we see a main thoroughfare and the residential streets we stop to witness an anonymous slice of life at a neighborhood street there's a cafe restaurant and vehicles that all look like classic cars from the 1960s a gang of children bicycling down the road a man loads cylinders into the back of a truck. A cat investigates a turned over trash can. City workers in high-vis jackets operate a front-end loader, but instead of a scooper, this loader uses a huge robotic hand at the end of a hydraulic arm. Across the street from an industrial park is a dead, dried-up flower. Elsewhere, in the slums of this grand city, it's evening now, and impoverished children play at a run-down playground. The street lamps flicker on, and the children pause to watch magical green exhaust billow into the night's sky from atop a reactor's cooling tower that feels like it looks down over the city. The magical energy separates into glowing green particles as it rises into the black night sky. Then the camera turns back down to the city to a dark alleyway at night where we watch a young woman kneeling before more glowing green particles. Her eyes begin closed, but when she opens them, we see her irises are also green. She has a pink bow tying back a ponytail of thick brown hair. She wears a red half jacket over a pink summer dress and is holding a basket of yellow flowers. As the camera pulls back, we see the particles aren't from the reactor we saw a second ago. They're wafting off a cracked utility pipe in this alleyway. She senses something down the way and goes alert, but there's nothing there. Not to us, anyways. She walks with haste out of the alley and into an intersection brimming with city nightlife. A stranger shoulder checks the young woman and two flowers fall out of her basket. She picks up one, but another stranger carelessly tramples the second flower as he walks by. She picks up the final flower, holds it to her chest, and looks up into the sky. The camera zooms away from her dramatically and we see the city block, the train station nearby, then one of those reactor towers, then a colossal tower taking a very unusual asymmetric shape. Finally, we view the city 
city in full. It is a massive metropolis taking a very circular shape with the edges wreathed in equally spaced reactor towers. We can see the city is broken out into equally spaced districts, like slices of a pie chart, with the colossal tower sitting in the center of the pie. Those reactors are all guttering green magical energy into the night sky. Then the Comet logo charges in and the game title appears with a swell of courageous energetic symphonic music. The camera hangs on this for a moment, then zooms back down to street level again, intercut with flashes of a charging train engine. The zooming camera and the train flashes merge to show a young man with blonde hair riding on top of the train with that enormous pseudo-cleaver on his back. The train comes to a dramatic halt at a train platform lit with white industrial lights, and we can see two anonymous guards with rifles and futuristic helmets inspect the train. They split off, and a moment later, one hears the other yelp. That guy is gone. The remaining guard goes on high alert, but a young man and a young woman, each wearing red bandanas, spring out from the shadows and neutralize him. Another young man leaps off the train, and he's more corpulent than the other two, and also wears a red bandana. They race towards a towering, barrel-bodied, and extremely muscular man with a Gatling gun on one of his arms, who gives the three the signal to go ahead. He's wearing a dark green combat vest, leather gauntlets, tattoos on each shoulder, a dog tag around his neck, and blackout shades. He looks over his shoulder and says, get down here. The blonde swordsman we saw on top of the train forward flips off it and sticks the landing like you wouldn't fucking believe. He's handsome, has blue-green eyes, and we can feel the determination on his face. The game begins here. Amazing, Tyler. Thank you for that. Now, let's analyze that. What do you think? It's glorious. It is... Well, first off, a lot of it is new. It isn't a one-to-one recreation of the original's intro movie scene. We establish more of a sense of place of the city of Midgar. We've got the slice-of-life scene, the daytime scenes, the people busy working, they're living their lives in the city is all kind of new. Things look a lot more modern than I kind of anticipated them to be, but I also remember that there was an antiquiness to it too. For example, those vehicles, they felt mildly steampunky. Of course, all of that nuclear power adjacent infrastructure is part of a steampunky sort of aesthetic, and certainly Midgar falls into that realm as well. Glorious, awesome, beautiful, loved it. Yeah, I'll make a quick point. You said like a 1960s aesthetic to the vehicles. I might even say late 1940s. Everything looks art deco to me. And I think that we had moved on from that by the 60s. So just a mild little art history nerd moment there. But I'll back that up a little bit later once we do more of a deeper analysis of the city as we're moving through it. I'm going to start right back to the beginning with that first shot of us panning over the desolate landscape. You can see there are dried riverbeds and they're really communicating how this area is lifeless. But this is not the first time that people involved in Final Fantasy VII have used this kind of establishing shot. The first time we've panned over the desolation along with a flock of birds or a bird or something to arrive at the site of Midgar. I'll liken it to the effect of when a song begins and ends with the same chord, like a reprise in a way. And this is where just right away I need to get into that dicey territory of a little bit of spoiler territory. But you mentioned that shot of our flower girl looking at the green sparks. That is kind of the intro shot of OG Final Fantasy VII, right? That is where the original intro kind of picks up because you said a lot of this is new. Well, OG Final Fantasy VII ends with that same shot, the chord repeating itself. That is the last thing you see, except there is an extra little 
bonus video at the very end of the game after the credits where we see that desolate landscape we're panning over it and we're seeing a vision of midgar now a very different midgar and i'll leave that up for later i guess i should say i'm feeling a lot of deja vu with how they set up this first shot of us panning our way over the wasteland and into midgar and so i was feeling a little bit of familiarity there and i started asking myself okay interesting giving me that same feeling at the beginning of this game that they gave me at the end of the last game and you might think uh maybe you're stretching a little bit there nate well in the movie advent children they did the same thing the scene i described at the very end of final fantasy 7 they use as the intro to the advent children movie they replay that in modern updated cg glory so they are not strangers to you using this technique so i was feeling very familiar in the way the intro was going and right as i was ready to leave that behind the music plays there's kind of an ominous song playing as we enter midgar the triumphant upbeat inspiring music that you would expect from a, a final fantasy intro gives way to a little bit of ominous dissonance and you hear the vocals come in there's a vocal chant <laughs> what the fuck was that so, sorry i just I, I think i blacked out there for a Nate, you've been practicing in the shower? So the, the lyrics come in. Yeah, um, the lyrics. Estuans interius. We can hear chanted softly in the background of the Final Fantasy VII remake intro music. Again, the lyrics come in. Ira vehementi. Now this in Latin means burning inside, unbridled fury. Those are the lyrics from the end of Final Fantasy VII's battle with a certain antagonist we will soon meet in this game. They're part of an iconic theme song of his you may even have heard it in super smash brothers <laughs> as i will point out but again i'm asking the question why are these elements reprising themselves at the very beginning of this game and when it really comes in and hits is th that scene where you described the kids looking up at the reactor that reactor lights up as night hits mm -hmm. and they got to turn on the lights for the city and that additional power needed kicks in the reactor fires up and spits massive green energy in the air you see that reflect in the eyes of a child and they pull the volume up on those lyrics and it really hits you at that moment the ominous feeling of what we were viewing as a playful exchange between children enjoying their day is now there's this foreboding feeling of death on the air i don't know it's just my perception of how they delivered that or wonder like watch this thing go it's so cool it's so strange it's like looking at the northern lights yes it's bedazzling yes exactly and so for me this additional intro that they created at the beginning of it we're gonna get into a lot of talk here on the remake having padding or adding things in that weren't in the original and there's a lot of discourse on that online but to me as i analyze this and i dig into this i'm finding so many things that bring up this question of like there there's a very strong purpose to this establishing shot that we get before we visit our flower girl like we did in the original. There's a lot of additional things being said here and intentional too, not just, yeah, let's do some establishing shots. Let's show Midgar, etc. It's like they're doing something very explicit here, in my opinion. I don't know how you feel about that, Tyler. I liked it. I liked that we were getting more of Midgar, that we were seeing what normal Midgar looks like, what normal business and what society kind 
kind of looks like in this city. I thought it was a special treat. I thought it was wonderful. And there's a lot of familiarity there. There's a lot of ways in which it looks like our world. It, we feel like we could live there, but then you'll see on the side of a building, a giant pipe jutting out of it and running down the stretch of the entire city. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be an overpass to get people over that massive pipe. And it's like, okay, well, I don't have that in my life. So it's this blending of real world familiarity with the steampunk, the fascinating fantasy of it all. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. These new scenes in the intro seed a couple Easter eggs or, or more like nods to things that savvy Final Fantasy VII players would recognize, for example, that industrial hand is a little thing that will come up later. The playground is also recognizable that the kids were playing on as night fell. The style of cars, for example, the flatbed truck is also very recognizable from the original movie and elsewhere too, not just the original movie, I think. And when we get into the shot of what is comparative to the original, I'll say that we have that establishing shot of, do we want to say her name here? We all know who it is. It's Aerith, right? Or do we want to call her? Aerith, Aerith. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because answer this for me. This game originally came out in Japan. This character's name in Japan was Erisu, right? Mm -hmm. How do we get from Erisu to Aerith? Because there is no TH in Japanese. So even if you were to say, hey, person from Japan, they Earth, say planet Earth, you get Erisu, right? But they don't mean to put the TH in there. They have not worked their tongue muscle to do the TH sound. So where did the TH come from? Her name is a reference to the word Earth. Really? It's Earth with an A on it. I did not know that. Is that known? Yeah, that is the inspiration for her name. Oh my gosh. I still don't like TH, but I have an increased appreciation for it. Yeah, well, Eris has a much more... To me, there's a connection in English to like the term Aegis or like a protector or a guardian. Mm -hmm. So I made that connection before I knew about this detail. All right. I think... If you want, you can call her Eris and I'll call her Aerith. It sounds better as Eris, as a English speaker. But I think to be correct, I have to use Aerith. I will try to use Aerith. And if Eris comes out... It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you everybody at home. Post-production Nate here. I just wanted to add that Final Fantasy VI's leading lady is named Terra, which is also another word for Earth. So Aerith, Earth, not completely coming out of left field as far as the naming convention used here. So, yeah, that's our flower girl. We'll just break that egg open right now. But in comparison with the original, there are a couple key differences here. Aerith in the original did not have her eyes closed. She was not shown as like in this state of what I'll identify from my the visual language of my upbringing. It seemed like she was in a state of spiritual communion with the the sparks coming out of the pipe, if you will. I don't know if you got that sense. Mm -hmm. Essentially, she was actively doing something not just like relaxing in that moment and then her eyes shoot open as if she's becoming aware of something mm -hmm. and she is in the original she just kind of stands up and walks out to the street corner whereas in this one she is kind of jolted up and looks into the alleyway and we hear that chant again the essence Antarius, right mm -hmm. it almost made me question i'm going to use that word again diegetic is the chanting real in the game is she hearing it. I don't know, like, because they play that and she immediately reacts to it and looks in the alleyway and is prompted to move away, like, almost a little frighteningly, stand up and make her way out to the street. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge key difference that they add in there. As far as just, like, stylistic, the, the amount of the tech we have at our disposal now, 
now the shot of Midgar establishes it as this is a hundred percent capable of being like a modern metropolis the amount of streets buildings skyscrapers off in the distance that sense of scale is much more present in remake of how this place functions as a full-on modern city than in the original per se you can see through the plate cracks the divisions between them down to the the lights of the slums below there's so many layers of amazing detail happen here that it would just be insane to be one of their three-dimensional artists it's crazy yeah it is i want to bring you back to Aerith's little moment Aerith's. Aerith's. seriously guys Aerith's. Aerith c Aerith's of xenoblade chronicles yes the intro movie begins differently of course we don't get the wasteland shots we don't get any bird shots at all we don't get the slice of life of daytime midgar what we get instead we look at the stars for about a minute straight the audio of this moment is pretty weird it's just dull churning it's like the ambient sounds of the universe and in the original the stars are white and they don't look like mako energy but it does fade to look like flecks of mako energy when it appears before Aerith's face and i'm glad you mentioned about noticing something before she walks away because i kind of wondered if we were seeding something that Aerith's going to talk about later in ways that make remake different than original i would like to circle back to this moment again several episodes from now yes indeed okay great also she doesn't drop her flowers and nobody runs over them no however someone is going to shoulder check her later yes in the original i was gonna say that too and also tyler she drops a handful of flowers two of those flowers have yellow petals on them and we will later be informed of the significant meaning behind giving someone this type of flower but we saw two of those fall to the ground and as you mentioned one is trampled one is rescued by Aerith. so that's something i want you to think about later when we learn the meaning behind these flowers and also the big picture of two similar beloved things one rescued one destroyed yeah that's pretty neat also the train feels more rusty in og it's more brown yeah yeah more distressed it's very very sleek in remake of course a lot of things are very sleek in remake yeah i think that's something where in the original everything just kind of looked like shit (laughs) to some degree (laughs) whereas like there's this modern element of in remake they're highlighting strongly the class divide between the above and the below you have to make the above look a little bit more glamorous and aspirational to be a part of that world instead of it all just looking like rusty shit you know Mm -hmm. i think they made a conscious effort to widen that gap between the visual fidelity of what the game was presenting sure I'm into that. There's still this weird thing of they, the original game too had that 1940s aesthetic running through everything and that's pretty cool but they also all have cell phones now in remake so there's a little bit of a divide of the tech being used is all super modern but the aesthetic of everything is definitely a reference to a more industrial early America time. Mm-hmm. I guess 1940s isn't all that early America but it feels like that to us <laughs> at our current point. Nate, do you want to take us through the train station? Yeah, sure. So I'll point out a cool little thing about transitioning from the intro to that character setup hopping off the train moment is they kind of seamlessly take you from the pre-rendered video, the gorgeousness of it, to a little puff of steam blows in front of you and you're suddenly in live action, live character models and everything. So it's almost like you can't tell the difference between the two. Our visual fidelity has grown so much, whereas in the original, (laughs) you got your little uh, Lego characters jumping off the train. (laughs) 
<laughs> I remember seeing that. And, and especially when you tried to show the game to other people, they would like, what the hell am I looking at? Why does that guy have blocks for hands? And it's like, dude, just play the game, man. Let's go. Let's let's get into the mind blowing part. Don't worry about the Lego hands, dude. Nate, do you think you could talk like your hypothetical 11 year old cousin into playing Final Fantasy VII original because the character models look like Minecraft or Roblox? I bought a digital download copy of Final Fantasy VII for my niece when she turned 11 because I played it when I was 11. I'm like, all right, you're old enough. And I don't think she made it past the reactor because she said the game was too hard. And I was a little sad, but it was okay. I, I'm not the type of person to be like, you need to like this. You need to like what I like. It's like, all right, we gave it a shot. It's a free game. Nobody's going to sneeze at a free game. All right. Gave it a shot. I tried. I But no, Roblox is not part of the equation. I pitched it as the greatest game ever made. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if I believe that, but you got to you gotta sell it hard when you want to <laughs> expand the minds of the young ones. Capture the attention of the young one, right? Also, recall in Final Fantasy VII OG that the backgrounds are pre-rendered. These are pictures that are textured very nicely, and then cloud and party and characters kind of, they move along them, but the corner of the street doesn't actually have, like, mass in the game screen. It isn't. If it's collidable, it's because that the programmers drew a line and said, you stop at this horizontal line we drew on the map, not because you stopped at an object that we put in that has collision physics programmed to it. Yes. And that's how you navigate maps, for the most part, in this game. Yeah, and in the scenes that constitute the... What we'll be talking about here in chapter one, there are a total of 10 maps in OG Final Fantasy. In the reactor? Mm-hmm. Or do you mean at, at all? So in Remake, we cover the the bombing mission for reactor one. And so that content in the original uh, Final Fantasy seven is composed of 10 images you run around on top of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yes, we hop off the train. We're good to go. We arrive and we dispatch the guards and we begin learning our combat. Well, oh, by the way, Jesse uses a kick to subdue a guard in both versions. I thought that was a neat little detail to pick up. Yes, and I didn't really believe that that was a kick capable of knocking a guy out. Didn't have enough mass and it didn't like deform the chest piece slightly. It was a very flat kick in Remake. And the original she floors the guy with that kick. Yeah, yeah, she does. We arrive and you know, if you're playing with us, you're going to get a lot of tutorials on combat and everything. I'll just simply say a much more action oriented experience than the original. Obviously, we're no longer doing turn-based combat in a way you essentially have your standard attacks you hit enemies with for these intro sections that's kind of sufficient to kill people but that will build up your atb gauge which allows you to execute abilities use items use magic etc so you're kind of going to be whittling away at enemies in order to build up to more purposeful attacks and it's going to get to the point where if you only use standard attacks you're probably going to have a hard time there's also a dodge roll there is a component where each character will have a different special ability. Cloud has kind of a counter stance that he can use. So there's operator mode, which is normal battle stance, and then punisher mode. Your move speed is way, way slower. You hit harder, and you will counter melee attack if you use the counter trigger uh, smartly. Also, blocking increases your ATB meter so you can leverage not just attacking but properly defending to earn resources to be able to cast spells or do special abilities. And what I'll say is it seems like to me 
the ATV Gauge is kind of the perfect solution to the same kind of combat system that was, I believe, kind of first introduced in Final Fantasy 15, mm-hmm. the one with Noctis and the boys. A lot of the same elements here where that game had you much more action oriented. But the thing that 15 didn't have was any sort of limitation to what those abilities are, except for like resources, for example. In that game, there was this like difficulty spike they had to introduce late in the game where because you could throw one of your 99x potions at any time or have somebody toss a heal at any point in the game, you then had to have your enemies constantly just kicking the ever living shit out of you to make it feel difficult. Because if they weren't, you just throw a potion anytime you need to. And that was, there was this kind of like spikiness to the gameplay, the damage coming in and the damage going out. 15 felt very like hectic and spiky. And so I feel like the ATB system solves that in saying we can limit the amount of damage coming into you because we're limiting the amount of healing and capabilities you can put out at any point. And usually you think, okay, limitations, that means less fun. But really, to me, it comes off as so much more elegant than 15 handled it because it's not necessarily a limitation to build up, to use your attacks, like you said, blocking builds that meter, countering builds that meter bigger. Just essentially playing the game correctly is what builds that meter. So it's rewarding to get those moments where you're ready to use an ability or magic. It, it feels good to execute those instead of feeling like, oh, it's a I've been bottlenecked into being unable to do anything. It's more so I know exactly what I need to do at all times. And there's like this decision tree firing off in your head of like, I need this, therefore I do that. I need that, therefore I do this. I think the combat's great. I think the meters are great, especially stagger too. We could probably get into stagger if we really wanted to. Putting it succinctly, there is a special bar that appears underneath a an enemy's health bar that will fill if you are correctly exploiting a weakness that isn't going to be very obvious to you. And I assume unless you use the scan material, which we'll get probably later. As you exploit that weakness, that bar builds. Once it fills, the enemy is staggered. And when they're staggered, they take an increased percentage of damage than they would normally. Also, they appear to be stunned for a certain amount of time too. That's your opportunity to bank all of that extra ATB bars that you've been holding on to and just unleash a huge assault of damage now that you've completely exploited the weakness. It's a neat mechanic. Octopath Traveler leverages a battle system that uses stagger systems as well. I think that goes over pretty well too. That's an element that's kind of bleeding into all Final Fantasy games now. It was in Final Fantasy 13 first, I believe. It was in 15. It's now going to be in the new Final Fantasy 16 as well. So I think it's just something that's becoming synonymous with the series as a whole is it's a means to introduce you using varied techniques or looking for enemy weaknesses instead of always just mashing your best ability because Cloud has varied abilities. So why not just find out which one's the best and use that one? Well, the situation demands differently because certain stagger conditions are different for what type of enemy you're taking on. So that's why it exists. And I think why it's persisted through entries is to encourage you to use all the tools in the toolbox and not just Mm -hmm. the biggest, best tool. Also, a few other things that they teach us that are here in Remake that's not in OG is that if you smash boxes with the Shinra logo, you will earn items or Mako shards or Mako shards, as Barrett puts it, um, which give free MP. 
And we've also been getting Moogle medals as well from these things. And well, what are those for? We will find out later. Yeah. So we've got a number of guards that rush forward to assault Cloud. The rest of the party kind of ducks behind a wall, hides behind a pillar while Cloud draws the attention to him. Yeah, we're using Cloud to distract guards so that they can sneak past. His role is much more clear in Remake than in the original. It seems like in the original, he was just kind of one of the team members, whereas here it's very much defined of you are the distraction. You were hired to pull all of the enemy troops towards you while the other guys kind of take on their mission and minimize the amount of danger there. And Cloud might be disposable to them. Now, certain party members like him, but (laughs) as far as the leader of the group at this point, Barrett, the hulking machine gun armed man you identified earlier, he seems to be disinterested in Cloud at this point. And so it makes sense that Cloud's job is to be the, the distraction. Now, in the original game, you could loot the previously knocked out train guards for two potions, two guards down. You could run up and click each of them for a potion each, or you could just step away and step back and loot the same guard for a second potion. And that's because those two guards have the same character ID in the game's data to where there was never actually two guards. It's just one guard duplicated twice on screen and he has two potions. The little bit of code trickery they use there. But anyway, in Remake, those guards don't have potions. And I was sad because I wanted to do my little double potion trick on him. Yeah, you're right. They don't. But anyway, so Cloud continues to move through the train platform. So you move through the entryway to the platform. There's a little waiting area with like vending machines and pathways and benches and all the stuff you'd expect to see. Posters for ads for Benora White Apple Juice, Air Music Gallery, vending machines selling Red Lord Energy Drink branded with a red and orange bomb enemy and clear icicle mineral water, Perhaps from Icicle Inn. Yes. And this interior area wasn't accessible in the original Final Fantasy VII, but it totally existed because when you would go through that doorway off the platform, you would appear on the upper level above it and you could look down at the train below, but you wouldn't actually be able to access the interior area. So that's just one example of the quote unquote adding that everybody's mad about. It's like we're actually expanding to a lush, realized three-dimensional world that we can look at from every angle and experience all the nooks and crannies. So it was really interesting because I didn't actually know that as a kid when I played it. I thought I was going through that doorway and coming out on the other end. But as I investigate original seven screens in light of what I know about Remake's environment, it's all 100% accurate. I'm like, damn, that's pretty cool that they went to that length instead of just like fade to black. Okay, you're upstairs now. They actually went above and beyond for this entire location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. We catch up with the group. The young, skinnier man with the red bandana looks like a young, sprightly Charlie Sheen. It is unmistakable how Charlie Sheen this guy looks. <laughs> Love it. And the larger fellow, well, he's voiced by Matt Jones, best known for being the actor for the character Badger in the TV series Breaking Bad, and I love him in this. I feel like somebody took my brain out and boiled it in like, like anthrax. 
perfect casting if you ask me when the very first trailer dropped people were being like that's him and he went on to twitter to say no that's not me mm-hmm. it so was him it, it wasn't him but then they later hired him oh really i didn't know that because he commented on that thread months or years later and said okay well turns out i am in the game that's crazy i did not know that detail i thought he was just being a little facetious mm-hmm. in that no it's not me and it totally turned out to be him if he was then he's fooled me but I did a little more digging and it looks like that was the case. And if you go to other resources that give voice actor profiles of like everybody in the game, they include Badger. Yeah, I have no doubt that it is him. It's interesting because what you're commenting on might be a little bit of that thing we talked about where originally the game was handled by another studio and Square Mm -hmm. Enix kind of stepped in and took over because it wasn't at the quality level they were wanting from it. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was part of that transition. And also the thing I talked about in our previous episode where the developers were very in touch with the social media of the game so if he was seeing these twitter threads of like sounds like badger (laughs) and he's like you know what we love that guy let's do it like again all unconfirmed but i didn't even know that and what you're telling me really kind of does line up with some of those details it's great the trio of bandana people are at work hot wiring a door open and there's a conversation between the young woman named jesse and vix the charlie sheen analog did you just say vix did i say vix you did i heard vix that's a deep cut that's a deep Final Fantasy cut. Isn't it Vix? It's Biggs. It's Biggs. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> but Biggs was incorrectly translated into Vix in Final Fantasy 3 on the Super Nintendo. Holy smokes. Okay, guys, it's Biggs. I thought you were doing that on purpose. No. No, dude. For reference here, creators of Final Fantasy love Star Wars, and they've included a Biggs and Wedge when creating tertiary characters in Final Fantasy games. But when Final Fantasy 6 was brought to America as Final Fantasy 3, the translator was not aware of of the Star Wars reference. And so Biggs was translated as Vix because there isn't a B to V dichotomy in Japanese characters. You kind of just have to make a judgment call on it. If that doesn't tell you that Final Fantasy VI is more at the core of my heart of hearts of RPGs, then I don't know what will. That's amazing. That was a spectacular F up on my part. I thought it was purposeful. I thought you were (laughs) dropping a deep cut. Not quite. Anyways, Biggs suggests that this new guy, a Merc, is a pro, but the three of us are simply amateurs. He's a professional, unlike the rest of us. I'm glad to have him. We learn the blonde bladesman's name, Cloud, who reiterates this is strictly a one-time gig, and Wedge finds this disappointing. Wedge is the badger guy. Earlier, I talked about Tetsuya Nomura's character designs. All of Tetsuya Nomura's characters are weather statuses or weather items of some kind. So we have Cloud, we have Squall, we have Lightning, and then I don't, I don't know. That's as far as I got looking it up. But Cloud was the first. We get our first nuggets of characterization. Wedge, he looks like he's excited to have a new friend or a new member of the party he's a friendly guy he's jolly he's lovable as you said cloud is there just for the job he's disinterested he's not concerned he can't be bothered but wedge does try to pal up with cloud cloud says the words not interested come on nobody do something this crazy just for money they may not think you're a true believer but you know what i think not interested in japanese this phrase is kiyomi nai 
This is Cloud's catchphrase. He drops it verbatim at several instances in both games. Seven Remake understands that this is his catchphrase, but in original Seven, with the Rust translation, it didn't understand that, and it would translate it contextually based on the sentence that was said to him. He would respond to that sentence. But the first time that they did started translating this correctly was in Advent Children, where Cloud's friends even know how to interrupt him because they know he's going to say, not interested. They imitate him and say it before he can say it as a poking fun at him. So you might see this throughout the game that he drops this. This is his catchphrase, but they failed to pick up on it the first time translating the game. They're doing a good job of it here. And a fun little tidbit is Final Fantasy VIII created a catchphrase in the translation where one didn't exist in the original Japanese with squalls, whatever. So it's like they almost like karmically were making up for their failure to catch Cloud's catchphrase by inventing one for their sequel's character. We have Biggs being the optimist he is. He's interested to see if Cloud will stick around, if he'll really join up for the cause. And then Jesse, well, we'll talk more about Jesse. I love the additional characterization here. In Original 7, they're played very flat. Maybe Wedge gets the most personality out of the three of them in the original. But also, when it came to translating the game from Japanese to English, it was much more difficult because with the technology of the day they were restricted to the amount of characters that they could fit in the text boxes needed to be the exact same or less they couldn't create additional text boxes or additional characters within the game's code to translate it well japanese can say a lot more in fewer characters than you can say in english because of the presence of kanji which is entire words or ideas in one character so that's a problem a lot of the characters is kind of toned down or simplified to just make matter-of-fact statements. So it's interesting now that we have this opportunity, I love how they've expanded upon characters and amped up their personality to an amazing degree. Oh, I agree. Jesse says balls. I don't know if we get Jesse saying balls in the original. It's in reference to Cloud that he's got balls. So what's Soldier Boy's deal? Is he one of us now? He's got balls this, uh... Uh, what was his name again? They also refer to him as Soldier Boy, which I absolutely love. I can't get enough of them calling him Soldier Boy just because he is a former member of a, an elite military group called Soldier, all caps every time you say it. So it's not just that he is a soldier. Soldier is the name of the unit he was a member of. You get the added frosting on the dome of we have Soldier Boy. <laughs> the rapper here in america to reference so every time i hear it i just laugh i think it's hilarious in a good way it's it just rolls right off the tongue every time i hear it i think of the character from the boys mm, are you all caught up on it i am yeah there's a lot of interconnectivity of it being a great phrase mm -hmm. soldier boy was a super soldier too yep i also say just in this intro here if it's a japanese game there's gonna be what i call anime grunting when somebody will say something Thing, you'll hear another character go, ah, 
It's like, okay, okay. And there's actually, I had to make the call on whether I'm playing it on PC or PS5. I have both and I bought it for PC for the purposes of this playthrough, but I don't think my PC is quite capable of handling it at the degree the PS5 can. So if anybody wants to mail me a new PC, go for it. But if I were playing on the PC, there is a mod that removes all anime grunting. the game (laughs) and i'm like you know what for the sake of the podcast i think i gotta leave it in yeah get get immersed man feel this world let this world fill out there were other mods i was very interested in but i'll leave that to your imagination he's got balls spectacular nate once we crack open that first door where the character expansion was taking place the original og just has you running through streets getting into random battles remake has us very specifically being accosted by guards where our partners are ducking behind walls and hiding and Cloud will move to join them and then Biggs will say something like, hey, not yet. You got more guys on your tail. So kind of elaborating on that purpose for Cloud being there again. But they finally arrive to a giant T-shaped catwalk to the entrance of the reactor where Wedge is left behind to kind of stand guard and protect their escape route and the rest of the party moves in. There's kind of a break where Barrett takes the opportunity to ask if Cloud knows anything about the interior of a reactor. Barrett wants to find the Mako storage area, and then he kind of makes fun of Cloud, saying, is Stamp scared to bite the hand that fed him? Stamp scared to bite the hand that fed him? Or is he a loyal little doggy? And this line doesn't come up in the original. And in this moment, we don't know what this means. What is Stamp? Who is Stamp? What analogy is he riffing on to make this kind of pointed comment at Cloud? And we'll find out later who or what Stamp is. But right now, it's it kind of sounds weird. Although the comment is ingrained into like the cultural fabric of the social environment that these guys live in. And so, although I don't know what they're talking about, they are using like colloquialisms, like local language that is relevant to them, but probably not to other people, maybe outside of Midgar, for example. And so I have an appreciation for that, even if it's kind of new. That's a good point you made. I didn't know what the hell Stamp was and just kind of thought, okay, I'll have to figure that out later. I think it's funny how Cloud answers that by saying, well, different reactors of different interiors and the player might think that he's certainly been to a Mako reactor in Midgar but a person that has played the original knows that Cloud is probably better familiar with the interior of a Mako reactor that is not located in Midgar. Definitely and we know from playing the original that that one is much more archaic looking in comparison to what we're seeing here in Midgar. Seems like Midgar's technology is kind of the height of what Shinra is capable of after they've kind of made their rounds across the world Hmm. when barrett asks cloud to think upon reactor structure cloud is hit with a mild little headache and a a quick little flash of static on the screen like he's trying to recall something that's repressed or painful to him when he's thinking reactor layout Mm, good point it's much more brightly lit in the original that giant kind of golden yellow room when we're in the interior of the reactor kind of getting through security doors and still pretty dim and dismal looking in there Mm -hmm. at one point jesse asks if Cloud and Tifa are close, perhaps to see how likely it is she can get in his pants. And before he answers, Cloud flashes back to his childhood and sees a young girl with black hair. This is probably that woman, Tifa. And it doesn't last very long. We get a snapshot of this backwater village. There's a water tower made of wood that's kind of in the center of this public area of the town. We don't see very much of it, but we flash to there and then we come back. Cloud doesn't actually answer her, by the way. It seems like Barrett is a little perturbed 
disturbed by Jesse's repeated attempts to flirt with Cloud. Yeah. What we're going to gather about Jesse throughout this chapter is that she's a thirsty girl. She likes what she sees when she lays her eyes on Cloud, and she's interested in getting to know him better. She's thirsty, Nate. She's thirsty. Definitely. This is one of the newer aspects to elaborating on a character in the game is Jesse's flirtatiousness. And it's kind of a bone of contention online. There's a lot of discourse about people that find Jesse unbearable, annoying, too much of a archetype, and that especially a lot of feedback of real women don't talk this way. And one thing you can be sure of is to never go onto online gaming forums for opinions on what real women do. Because when I was on stream, I noted that Jesse gave me very strong first wife energy. And what I mean by that is I definitely knew a Jesse in real life. It was a woman I had a long-term relationship with, and we didn't necessarily have a lot in common. We had very different goals and aspirations for our life, but there was a bit of mutual attraction. And her tactic was what I would call death by a thousand flirtatious cuts, even though it didn't seem like the best idea right away. Over time, she wore me down. And with all of those flirty comments and insinuations and pokes and prods and hints, just casual, nothing overt, nothing creepy, nothing out of line, just always there, always present, always needling away at you. She eventually got what she wanted. <laughs> I like Jessie. She's, there's some fond memories there. We'll leave that right there. Next, we cut to an opulent office room, a gruff, black-bearded man in a green general's coat that's half Mao Zedong and half SS officer, but with lots of brass fastenings. He says, they call themselves Avalanche to another man that's in the room, blonde mustache, purple pinstripe suit. They're both monitoring the reactor break-in and they think these interlopers may be the ones who made an attempt on this dude in the purple suit's life. And as mentioned earlier, we learn that this is Heidegger by the caption. He doesn't address himself in this scene. We already know his name because of the caption. Heidegger. This scene is completely new to Seven Remake and is introducing a brand new plot thread that is almost, I'm not going to say a retcon, but just an entirely new angle to look at the situation of what happened at the reactor. They are unconcerned about the intrusion. They're looking at it. How can we spin this? How can we work this to our advantage? Plots are afoot. Already. Yeah, they are. The scene doesn't last very long and Barrett, Jesse, and Cloud descend an elevator. And it's here that Barrett pontificates that the reactor is siphoning Mako from the planet, Mako from the planet. I think he says Mako. Mako is the planet's lifeblood, which is being processed by the Shinra Electric Power Company to power this metropolis called Midgur. The planet is in peril cloud. Cloud doesn't care. Barrett says that he can hear the planet crying out in pain and Cloud tells him to get help. <laughs> <laughs> because he thinks he's a psycho. This It's clearly highlighting the rift between the two of them. And in the original, this was kind of a key moment as well where Barrett delivered the setup of the stakes of what's at play here. Mm -hmm. And in the original, they highlighted that division as well, that Cloud has a set of signature gestures that the original model did. And one of them was his shrug. And so you get your first glimpse of the Cloud shrug here where he's just like, I don't care, man, whatever. His head bobs to the side too 
when he shrugs in original. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. It's really like, I really don't care. Yeah. And with Barrett's portrayal here, I'm going to save my breakdown on Barrett's portrayal for our next episode because there's a much better example. Mm-hmm. But they're doing something very purposeful here that I think helps get away from some of the controversy that plagued Barrett. Even back in the day, as an 11-year-old, I remember that controversy existing. So just keep that in mind with that scene here as Barrett's kind of reaching to Cloud, his personal beliefs about what Shinra is doing to the planet. Keep that in mind because we'll dive into that a little bit more with his character later on. Mm-hmm. In this elevator, it's also the first time we hear the name of the city, Midgar. Midgar is a word from Norse mythology meaning Middle Home or Middle Earth, as in below Niflheim, which is the ice world above Midgard, and Muspelheim, which is a fire world below Midgard. Also, Midgard is made out of the body of the Ymir, Ymir, Y-M-I-R, a giant born from the ice and heat worlds between. He's born from both of those worlds. So it is interesting just that this particular city, which is at the nexus of the world, this is going to be the largest city on the planet, is rooted in this in this sensation that we are kind of between planes of existence. Between heaven and hell is the earth, and earth is Midgar. Yes, indeed. As we exit the elevator, ranged weaponry spots us on their cameras, and so that necessitates Barrett, the man with the gun arm, joining the party, because he can do range damage, which Cloud can't. Mm-hmm. Now, in the original game, you could put Barrett in your back line of your party to have him take less damage, because with that gun arm, he will do max damage to any targets at any distance, unlike Cloud, where if you put him in the back row, he's going to do half damage to any targets. Mm-hmm. So, a nice little reference there to some classic gameplay executed in the modern three-dimensional environment. For me personally, this environment that they step out to, it's kind of like a water repository tower on top of a multi-platform furnace station. I don't know how to describe it. It's tech that I'm not familiar with. Maybe some sort of engineer would know what they're looking at here. But suffice to say, this whole area that we, we traverse down multiple levels of platforms where construction is happening and lots of industrial technology cascades up these platforms. This was a single screen in Final Fantasy VII Original that it just goes to show the level of detail that they are pumping into this game to readapt the whole thing into kind of an environment that has multiple tiers to it and multiple paths to go through and encounters and things. You might encounter two random battles in the original and it's really you just go down one level and then there's a staircase that takes you down to your next door. Nothing too crazy about it, but I love the amount of expansion and design they're putting into this. And it really kind of leads in again to that discussion of padding. It's like, well, none of this feels unnecessary to me. It's all a very natural adaptation of a world I have already known. It all feels familiar. It all feels right to have this here. Yeah. When Barrett joins the party, this is also a chance to kind of look at everyone's equipment, Cloud's equipment too. They're equipped differently between the two games, aren't they? Yes. Cloud originally had lightning at its disposal and nobody had a heal spell to start. It was potions only. Whereas Barrett has the thunder this time. Barrett has cure. Cloud has fire. There's some good banter that happens between Barrett and Cloud. Barrett asks Cloud age. Cloud thinks he meant rank. Mm. And this is where it settles in that their voice acting is impeccable. I mean your age, not your goddamn rank. <laughs> it's like, it just shows that personality. Like Barrett has a sense of humor and he kind of jumps at the chance to make fun of Cloud and tear down that 
hardened exterior that Cloud puts out because really Barrett is the veteran here. He's the older man. He's the one in the trenches doing terrorist shit. Mm Mm-hmm. And Cloud thinks he's got it going on. And he he is good, but Barrett's seen some shit too. So they play off each other really well. And you can feel that in combat too. They kind of toss back, quips back and forth to each other. And they start very antagonistic towards one another. But we'll kind of see that develop over the course of their interactions is a little bit of them growing together. So Barrett has two attack modes as well. One of is a regular volley from his Gatling gun. And the other is called Charge, which is a powerful series of blasts that has a long cool down yeah we arrived at the reactor pump room and it's a large it looks like a cylindrical area as we traverse the catwalks kind of around it it's a massive opening where we can see all the way down to a macro pool laying below you can see that glow kind of rating up below the the catwalks and grating and it's also much more sensibly designed than the original game in the original there was like stairways that had decayed and things that are broken and just ladders precariously placed to get from one area to the other where it's like if you were a worker here you probably would not be taking this route and you'd be wondering what the fuck and so it almost looked in the original like this was somebody had broken up here and set this route ahead of time because we didn't do it but it doesn't make sense to be laid out that way but here all the catwalks and they all look like purposeful maintenance areas and also set up in a way that we can have fights here because in the original you'd just be transitioned to a different screen when you had a combat situation but here we actually have to have room to move so we can't be balancing on a round pipe and also delivering (laughs) full-on attacks so they expand upon the area and frankly looks amazing so this is different in a lot of ways but it makes sense that this is adapted differently than some of the other areas were Mm -hmm. barrett makes another little stamp analysis saying, you know, are you ready to bite the hand that feeds you again? And I find it strange that Barrett makes Cloud arm the bomb. Okay, so Cloud's here for the distraction and, you know, being part of the muscle, but Barrett tasks Cloud with arming the bomb, which makes me feel like Barrett's testing Cloud's allegiance or Barrett is using Cloud to keep himself out of legal jeopardy by being hands-off on this particular part of the operation. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're all fucked in that regard. Uh To me, it kind of stands out as almost like a ceremonial thing that he could set the bomb, but he's going to make Cloud do it just as like a gesture. Uh, There's no going back after this point. You're officially one of us if you commit this act. Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. In the OG, he's like, you set the bomb. I got to make sure you don't try and pull nothing like a a back attack or a sabotage of some kind. So I don't know. I feel like original makes just a little bit more sense, but this one has kind of the added character context. So either Either way, it kind of works. Sure. We have the option to arm it 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I always go f- less because I like things to just go faster. I don't even think it's going to be any more challenging because sometimes in games, you know, you, if you pick like the quicker ones, sometimes you just get fewer random battles to account for it anyways. And so I always just go earlier or sooner. Bear comments that he thinks you're cocky for picking the shorter time limit. Yeah, well, I'm in Soldier Dude. Wasn't Soldier Dude. Mm-hmm. Also in the original, there's a random restore material in front of the pump that we're bombing. It's not in the remake. The order of events change a little bit here in between remake and original because Cloud has a mental moment, I'll just put it. But they're completely different. They are completely different. 
in the original, we'll tackle that one first because I think it's less important. But in original Final Fantasy VII, you get like, the screen turns black and red and it says, watch out. This isn't just a reactor. And that phrase always confused me. I was wondering, what does that mean? Because as we know, we're about to be attacked by a security mech. Is that what it meant? Like it's a reactor, but there's also a security mech here. I don't, I didn't understand it. And it was literally in this playthrough that I thought earlier we talked about how asking about reactor architecture caused him to have a little bit of a headache flash Mm -hmm. it made me go back to og and think maybe he wasn't thinking about the sentinel maybe he was thinking about what his experience of what reactors are in addition to big maco pumps the one in his hometown hid a dark secret underneath its exterior so i guess to me that was totally missed but i don't know do you think that that's what they were setting up in the original was that reactors had a little bit more to them i guess yes i do think so but another question it posits is who's talking to cloud is this cloud's thoughts is someone speaking to him is there someone invisible in the room is there another voice in his head we don't really know where this is coming from it is very left field and i don't remember them having that quote here in the remake no it's different Mm -hmm. they they don't address that at all in remake um just to answer your question it's id it's id yes it's 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 id cloud (laughs) cloud (laughs) <laughs> in the remake version, this mental moment that Cloud has is pretty different. His head flashes, and then we see a black feather gently land nearby. This is symbolic, but of what? If you haven't played FF7, we don't know just yet. And the original FF7 also didn't have anyone with black feathers in it. Mm. Lore that was added outside of the scope of Final Fantasy VII of what that black feather symbolizes. Right, and it's a hallucination, by the way. It's not really there. Yeah, totally. It's, mm-hmm. it's a hallucination, Tyler. There's also the slightest little addition of a piano theme playing when the feather lands. Mm -hmm. But we'll leave that there. We'll leave that there because our attention is taken elsewhere. A scorpion sentinel mech suddenly attacks a giant six-legged tank. It has machine gun arms, rocket launchers, a laser beam tail at its disposal. It's capable of producing electric discharges as a shield generator and grasping claw hands at the side. I don't know if you have any additional details. No, that's pretty good. You have to cycle in between going in for attacks and then getting out and dodging its electric discharge. One of the easiest ways to do this is to go in, deliver a round of attacks, maybe an ability as Cloud, then switch to Barrett and do his round of attacks and cloud will automatically get out of the area and safeguard himself from the electric discharge if you're not feeling confident in doing it yourself at certain points of the fight the scorpion will produce a barrier in which you have to find a weak spot up his ass and break the barrier in order to damage him as the fight progresses on the scorpion's getting more and more damaged and erratic in its behavior it starts launching rockets inside the reactor doing untold damage to the structure of this thing almost as if the people who created it as we saw in the earlier cutscene are unconcerned with this intrusion of the damage caused the reactor and doubly so by deploying this thing even more so than us i feel like this is doing way more damage than we're supposedly going to do with that small c4 charge we have as the fight continues on it begins doing a kill attack one that you are warned with a tutorial that this will kill you if you do not do something about it and you have to hide behind a piece of debris in order to block the attack now in the original there's an iconic moment where the scorpion will raise its tail as if it's going to produce this laser attack and cloud says 
quote, attack while its tail is up, unquote. <laughs> and then a moment later, it says, quote, it's going to counterattack with its laser, unquote. So you know what I did as a child? I attacked while its tail was up and it counterattacked with its laser. And the thing proceeded to kick my ass. And maybe that's why my niece, who I mentioned before, was unable to beat this enemy was because of that miscommunication of you're going to fucking kill yourself if you actually do what Cloud told you to do. The real translation should be don't attack while its tails up or it will counterattack with its laser. That battle principle in the OG with the tail coming up is very reminiscent of the first boss battle of Final Fantasy VI where Terra Vix and Wedge are fighting a giant snail who occasionally regresses back into its shell and if you deal damage to its shell while the head is not present it will do an AoE lightning damage attack to everybody which is not very survivable if you take too many of them at a time. Introducing us to the concept that there's more to this game than just going balls to the wall all the time with your best attacks. You gotta think a little bit. Mm -hmm. But in uh, Remake we're basically synthesizing all of the game's elementary battle gameplay functions. I mean the point of the shield generator is to remind you that there is retargeting. When it climbs up on the walls, it's to remind you that there's swapping between heroes. Or when one character gets pinned, swap to the other to release them from being pinned. Um, there's pressuring, there's staggering, physically hiding behind debris to avoid the ultimate attack, as you described. And I think that the micro missile volley might be a means to test your block because it's a lot of instances of damage. And I feel like, I don't know if this is true or not, but I wonder how much ATB you earn per instance of attack or if it's just a percentile of some of damage that you block or would have blocked. It would be nice to look up what that damage formula or block formula is. Or you spam dodge roll and hope for the best. <laughs> you turn Barrett into Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> right. Yeah, this boss battle has three phases. The original has only one. It's an extremely cinematic experience as all bosses will be in Remake and it is awesome. It is riveting. It is pulse pounding. It's a great experience. And it's tied very closely in with the narrative of what's happening here and the original it's just a boss shows up tries to stop you it fails but here it has a very distinct purpose like we said that earlier cutscene, the office people we're gonna get into more of that in the next chapter of that angle between what shinra's doing here and what avalanche have we said the word avalanche yet in this podcast yes i've mentioned that heidegger mentions to the man in the pinstripe suit that they call themselves avalanche right okay yes so that kind of dichotomy between the two all of those elements just did not exist in the original of the damage that this thing did to the interior and the chaos that ensues after the fact in the original you set the bomb and you just have to leave the place as alarms are going off and you're getting into random battles with troops on the way out you got to get out of there before the bomb goes off but here as we're leaving we have explosions happening falling debris cloud gets knocked off a platform jesse is pinned under a cinder block that falls from the ceiling we get split up from Barrett as we're on our escape. So there's a lot more chaos ensuing from the destruction that the Sentinel caused in his death spiral, as I'll call it. None of that was really in the original. It was just leave with uh, people on your tail. Yes. There is one moment as you're escaping that 
Barrett climbs a ladder faster than you with one hand. Big Dunbin vibes in this moment. <laughs> yes. He did that too. In season one, we did Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, and there was a character there called Dunbin, and he was a one-handed playable character, and he could climb ladders like you wouldn't believe. And he's not as muscular as Barrett. It reminded me of that as well. I knew you were going to mention before you even got the words out. Yeah, not just climb ladders. I launched Dunbin across a mountainscape onto a chunk of ice and he gripped it with one hand. That's all I'll say. That's all you'll say. When we meet up, Barrett has adopted the name Soldier Boy, like all the kiddos of the group were calling him. And for the first time, Cloud says X Soldier Boy. So somehow it rubs Cloud differently hearing it from Barrett. Like for the other people to be kind of poking at him is one thing. But with Barrett, there's this antagonism between the two of them that he doesn't want to give him the satisfaction of using that against him. I also, on my escape, I encounter the first shock trooper enemy who speaks out, that's enough. In OG, I didn't know what I was looking at with these guys. They were like weird little robot dudes with claw hands and rivets stuck to their helmets. Oh, the, the blue guys? Yeah, they're like monks. Yeah, and their legs are spread in an awkward position and their arms dangle between their legs. And in the original, Cloud said at one point that he was going to try and avoid for security and the robo guards to come. That line is not in remake. So I had it in my head back in the day that those were robo guards, that there were fully automated Mm -hmm. AI, cyborg, whatever you want to call it, robots that acted as guards because they did not look or move like humans. But here, the way they speak out and the way they kind of deride Cloud as they're fighting him, it seems like there are humans in there, but they still move like goofy weirdos. What's the guy's name? Is it Valdo from Soul Calibur, the dude that kind of crawls around the ground and can't see anything? I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember his name. And he's got the claws and he kind of like dances around or whatever. His posture is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yep, that's him. Valdo. It reminds me of him. (laughs) They're weird. They're still weird, even though they are identified as being humans here. Mm Mm-hmm. In remake, we get to that elevator we went down in, and the bomb timer automatically skips to three, two, one. And when it explodes, it just blows off a part of the Mako pump, and it feels kind of underwhelming because in OG, the explosion rips through the reactor like comprehensively, and the scope of the explosion is different. So what happens next is we cut back to Heidegger and the Man of the Purple. The Man of the Purple commands Heidegger to command the reactor's defense systems to destroy the reactor, anyways. They're forcing a false flag attack now. In original you might say that this might still have been a false flag attack because we didn't exactly see the bomb that we planted rip through the reactor pump room but I don't think anybody ever thought that scenario back in 1997 there's actually direct dialogue that blowing the entire fucking thing up was exactly what they expected in the original because oh, that's right. jumping ahead in a couple chapters Barrett they're going to take down another one and Barrett says yeah we're going to make the next one bigger like don't <laughs> don't you be shocked by that one because we're going to go harder and harder. So they 100% intend to blow the entire fucking stack off the top of the thing in OG. Whereas in this one, there was this nuance of we're just going to shut down the pump. They're much more a a ragtag terrorist group, like throwing paint on the outside of a museum or something. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. if this didn't happen with the sabotage, that pump's going to get repaired a week later and they're going to say, well, at least we stopped one of reactors killing the planet for a week. They're kind of just this 
ground level activist group from what I'm seeing, but it kind of gets like dialed up to 11 real fast with the sabotage narrative. So very different execution between the two of them. And I think I'll talk more about that in the next episode. There's a huge thing that's happening here, but I'll do it when we get in the exterior and Barrett kind of gives a speech. Sure. Nate, do you want to share your thoughts about the smirk? Yes, exactly. Did I, I've told you about the smirk, right? Yes. But I want to I want to hear you say it now that you're on the record. Gotcha. So as we finally exit the reactor and the whole place is coming down, that aforementioned catwalk that Wedge was guarding, they're all running out. Cloud is kind of in line with Jesse. She trips. He picks her back up. But in the chaos, there is a point where a piece of debris knocks out the catwalk in between them. Jesse's on the other end, on the escaping end. Cloud is closer to the reactor and he's falling. He got taken down with the falling catwalk, but then he leaps up, jumps off the debris and propels himself onto the edge that Jesse is on, right? And she gives him this comment. Now that was pretty cool. She's just shocked at what she just saw. Like that was epic what he did. And as she's saying it, Cloud has to turn his head away because he's developing a little smirk on his face. He's got that hardened exterior. He's not connected. He's not interested in any of them, but we know that that's not who he really is, that that's a front he's putting on and they show us the littlest tidbit of that here that he likes being the hero he likes being the cool guy and as a child in the original we know that the reason he wanted to join soldier was to be like the legendary hero that everyone knew and so that's who he is deep down and that comes off and that was the moment even just playing it in the demo of the game when it was for before the game was released and they gave us the demo i got to see that and i was like wow they really understand his character that like he can't show them that he actually enjoys it that he loves what he does Mm -hmm. he has to kind of conceal it and so it's just expertly executed on the part of the writers and the camera and everything there right so when heidegger issues the command to destroy the reactor the reactor tower explodes and orange fireballs followed by a shockwave of green mako energy which causes the entire city to tremble it disturbs the peace the nightlife of the city is everyone's like uh startled and running amok And I believe that's where the chapter ends. Yeah. That's where the chapter ends. The stack blows on the the reactor. It doesn't matter what you set the bomb to. If you had 17 minutes left, it's going then and there. And that's both games. I think my record is like, I still have seven minutes left on the timer and it still is completely going up in smoke. The second you hit that catwalk. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. That might be fun to speed run and see what you can do. I guess I would equip a spell material onto Barrett so they can both be issuing spell commands to the boss at the same time on the same turn. One funny thing is as a kid, as the reactor exploded, it would leave off this shock wave that kind of shot forward uh, towards the camera as the stack blew upward. And then a couple years later, when George Lucas released the Star Wars episode four special edition he added a shockwave ring explosion to the explosion of the death star and i wondered to myself as again you got to put yourself in the mindset that i'm a kid did he play final fantasy 7 and rip off the shockwave explosion <laughs> yeah i know i'm an idiot that is so cute name yeah i remember the shockwave well it's there for everyone now you can't go back and get the non-shockwave version that's the way it is but no Little me as a kid, I knew that there was a different version out there without a shockwave. (laughs) 
As always, thanks for listening, everybody. The Hero of the Thousand Potions podcast is a production of Gunblade Guys. That's us, Tyler and Nate. We're on YouTube and Twitch as Gunblade Guys. We're also on Discord, which you can access via our podcast's description paragraph and other paragraphs as well. We have an email. Don't email us at gunbladeguys at gmail.com. I'm Tyler. And I'm Nate. And we will see you in Midgar. (laughs) 